From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As the war rages on in Ukraine, a small northern Colorado town welcomes those displaced. Then, a Latino festival of ideas in Aspen takes on big issues like disinformation. A large portion of Latinos got their political information from YouTube. Those who have been telling them to go vote all these years are now finally to go vote, and they're looking for information. Why are they going to YouTube? They're looking for voices that speak to them. And we follow Colorado Mesa University's new athletic director, the first woman of color to serve in that role. Plus, Grammy-winning saxophonist Gerald Albright prepares to take the stage at home in Colorado. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver, Aurora, Glenwood Springs, Grand Junction, Boulder, Minas Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The head of the United Nations sounded the alarm this week about current conflicts around the world, including the war in Ukraine. Since the war began, some Ukrainians have come to live temporarily in the U.S. Under a federal program, they are required to have someone in this country to support them while they're here. The small town of Estes Park in northern Colorado has become a small haven for some of those new immigrants. Natasha Plashkova was born in Ukraine and has lived in the U.S. for 10 years. She's part of the group helping them out. Natasha, welcome to the show. Good morning, Chandra. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're just as, so excited. I love I it. I am. I am. Well, I was excited. People want to know my story. Yes, yes. So your mother recently arrived in Colorado from Ukraine. September 14th. To be specific. Yep. I understand you also have a friend and her son arriving soon, and there are others in your area helping to bring some Ukrainians here. Now, while your mother was still in Ukraine, though, I understand early on she helped some Ukrainians fleeing areas being attacked. That's right. Can you tell us well, about that? Yeah. Yeah, when the war first started, um, late February, a lot of people from the east, because that was the area that was affected first, the Russians started bombarding the Kharkiv area. So a lot of people were fleeing west, and the central part of Ukraine where my mom lives uh, became a hub, a safety hub, and mm-hmm. the transition area. And my mom's house was one of those places where we would see anywhere between 10 to 15 people a night um, Mm. looking for food and shelter and um, just help. Now, your mother's area came under attack. What has she told you about that experience? Uh, About uh, Kharkiv area or central area? Just about the experience of, you know, experiencing, you know, attacks and being a part of watching all of this unfold before her eyes. Uh, My mom and I were interviewed by New York Times last week, and the first sentence she said, you cannot imagine what a relief it is not to hear the sirens. Mm. 
all night long. And that's the first thing when you open your eyes in the morning. So it's the constant fear. Mm -hmm. You don't know what's going to happen next minute to you, to your house, to your pets. It just being under constant pressure, being cornered um, and being pressed in that corner. Absolutely. And um, having the hard time to process why is it happening. Yeah. Not the alarm you want to wake up to every day. Nope. Nope. Not the music and not the birds singing. Nope. So your mother is going to be 70 later this year. Yes, And you urged her to come here to the U.S. How did she feel about relocating? Well, if you look at the uh, big tree with deep roots and a very large crown, and you are trying to remove the tree and uh, put it into the new soil. Mm-hmm. So if a soil, if uh, we were to compare the processes, it's uh, not easy. However, she's in a little bit different situation because she has a granddaughter here, my kid, 17 and a half year old child. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point in life, I feel like it's more about grandchildren than about children. Yeah. So grandkids will get someone anywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think that was um, the big thing for her. So a bit of inspiration and yep. motivation, motivation, to be here. yeah, and like purpose in life. And um, you know, let me tell you a little bit more about my mom. My grandpa, her father, was in World War II. And he went there as a very young man. He was only 19. And he fought for life. He fought for freedom. So, And my mom felt like this is something we need to carry on in our family. Mm-hmm. Whatever happens, we need uh, to choose life first. Choose life first. Choose life first. So also, as I mentioned, your friend and her son will arrive at the beginning of October. October Why? 1st. Why did yep. they decide to come to the U.S.? Well, uh, <clears throat> the, the boy, uh, he's actually my daughter's uh, childhood friend from our village in Ukraine. So we knew that family earlier. And uh, the boy was attending school. And uh, you, let me tell you, the audience, how his morning of the 24th of February started. The campus of the school was bombarded by Russians. Mm. And uh, a kid woke up because the shattered glass from the window of his dormitory room uh, just uh, was scattered everywhere. And because it was winter and he had a heavy blanket on him, the, the, the glass didn't cut his body. So otherwise, it could have been worse. So the school was shut down that um, day and didn't resume to normal, like we were talking about sense of normality before. Mm -hmm. So it never got normal uh, for him. Um, It was some Zoom um, meetings with the teacher, some instructions, but there's nothing in person going on, and it's not going to uh, resume in person until the war is over because the school doesn't have the place for students to hide. So um, him, his mother and him had to get out of Ukraine to go to Poland. Mm. He was seeking for some job opportunities there while um, the summer was uh, going on. And uh, when the program Uniting for Ukraine 
um, became available for people who are not uh, blood-related, we jumped on the opportunity right on because I feel the kid has to be provided with the schooling and education opportunities. And Estes Park School is welcoming uh, him. Wow. Uh, the superintendent is uh, very excited and uh, feels special about making a difference in somebody's life from Ukraine. Now, you mentioned um, the, the many Ukrainians in the area. There are a handful of Ukrainians That's at Estes right. Park. Yeah. And- and who helped them? <laughs> oh yes, I want to talk about that. Who helped family members come to the U.S. And you've been working with a Ukrainian friend, doing some fundraising at a yep. local deli. Yep. And uh, from what I understand, serving up some Ukrainian food That's and raising right. money. So I want to hear about That's that. That's right. And I appreciate the smile on your face when you are talking about the Ukrainian food. So early on in March, uh, my friend Irina Irklienko, who is the owner of the Rocky Mountain Deli in Astis Park, um, and I, we put our heads together and um, thought about the ways how we can help people who are back at home. Mm-hmm. So, and as I mentioned earlier, my, my mom was helping a number of people who were transient through the central part. So those people needed food, needed clothes, needed help. So that's how we decided that we need to be doing something here to fundraise the money and send it over directly to people who we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Irina is from Kharkiv area, and that's the place in Ukraine that was affected really bad. So at that time, she had her 82-year-old grandmother who was under the occupation of the Russian army. She was in the little village. Mm-hmm. So the roof of her house was completely destroyed because of the shelling. So the uh, lady lost all her teeth because of stress mm. and everything she was undergoing. So when the family was able to get her out of um, the occupied area, Irina um, uh, filed the paperwork and brought her grandmother, her 55-year-old mother, mm-hmm. and a 60-year-old father to the area. So those are the other three people that um, are now in Estes Park, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> we continue our effort. So the deli every Wednesday serves Ukrainian lunches, and mm. it's usually three courses. So everybody probably knows borscht. Wow, so you're really also <laughs> bringing Ukrainian culture to Estes Park. Right. Um, so probably everybody heard about Ukrainian borscht, the famous red beetroot soup. So mm. we always have that. Um, the second course can be potatoes with mushrooms or potatoes with meat or buckwheat with mushrooms. And a lot of other things from um, Ukrainian uh, cuisine. And, of course, dessert. Uh, and it's usually homemade pies or homemade cakes. Uh, this next weekend, my mom will be making a special pumpkin pie. And uh, we also make, um, in America, you call it fruit punch, but it's a compote. Mm. And it's the fruit so, beverage, so no sugar added. Ukrainian meal. And how much have you all raised so far? Well, so far, from the beginning of uh, the effort um, in March, over $20,000 that went to direct needs wow. of the families. And also recently, I've been uh, personally sending money to the shelter in my um, college town because the lady who is in charge, she was bringing the displaced and 
stray animals from the areas that were bombarded. Hmm. So she was bringing them to the central part of Ukraine. Now, I'm just curious, how has the Estes Park community reacted to this influx of immigrants? Uh, we were welcomed with open arms. And because uh, Irina and I have been in the area for uh, close to, to 10 years, Irina has been here a little bit over, and uh, people knew us. And my friend Irina even have godparents, the American couple that consider her um, their own daughter. So because it's a small uh, community where people know each other and people care. That's the main thing. People are not indifferent to what's happening. When the war first, they all reached out. How can we help? Now, you make a good point about indifference. Uh, you know, it was a hot topic months ago, but the, the headlines have kind of slowed down and you don't hear about it as much in American media. And how do you feel about that? And is part of what you're trying to do to draw attention to the fact that this is still going on? Uh, well, um, it, it changes. At first, it was very dramatic, mm -hmm. and the eastern parts uh, were affected. So Irina was from that area, and people knew that now it shifted to the south. Um, in July, they bombarded my college town. And, mm. uh, you know, I am. I feel like I live in the history book, and I am the story, and I am the face uh, behind what's happening in my area. And I don't go anywhere. People know me. So, and I received this very nice note from a friend of mine in Estes Park. And I was moved to tears. So he was saying, when you leave this earth, leave more than your bones. And be a role model for acting when others just fade away. You know, we do not fade away. I mean, probably the headlines will fade away and there will be another news coming next day. But if you carry this as a part of your family, as a part of your DNA, as mm -hmm. a part of who you are, you won't fade away. You bring up the people and it seems like that's the center of what you're trying to do. Does your mother have any plans to go back? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um so she mentioned in her New York Times interview, because there was a question like, what were you thinking when you were passing the areas um, that were devastated? She was thinking about the graves of her parents and her husband, my dad, uh, who passed away about 11 years ago. So this is something that you always go back to, because mm -hmm. this is where a part of who you are. Uh, the Uniting for Ukraine program provides two years <clears throat> of stay, and then people either have to go back or, or if they want to pursue education in the United States or uh, <clears throat> open in a business or other things. But my mom does want to go back because that's where she was born. And as I mentioned earlier, if you're trying to replant an old tree, mm -hmm. you have to have a grandkid. Natasha, <laughs> and, uh, and I want to be clear that Natasha's uh, tearing up and uh, it just brings the emotion to this experience. Thank you so much, Natasha, for joining us. Thank you for having me. It has been a pleasure.
Thanks. Natasha Plaskova is a native of Ukraine who lives in Estes Park. She recently helped her mother relocate there, and she's also working on helping bring others fleeing the war here, including a woman and her son expected to arrive in early October. Next up, Colorado Mesa University's new athletic director made history as soon as she walked in the door. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Sixteen schools make up the Rocky Mountain Athletic Conference, and none has ever had a woman of color serve as athletic director. Well, until now. Kimberly Miller just started at Colorado Mesa University. Colorado Matters producer Carla Jimenez recently spent an afternoon with her on the CMU campus. Kimberly Miller spends part of her afternoons wandering the Maverick Center on Colorado Mesa's campus. The first stop is checking in on the girls' basketball team. Yeah, I did shoot basketball a little bit <laughs> with them. Hi. Are you good at it? No. <laughs> Miller has a long love and history with sports. She started playing softball when she was seven years old. She fell in love with the sport because her mom played on a recreational softball team. She's wanted a position as an athletic director for a very long time. But it wasn't always obvious Miller would realize this dream, along with a doctorate in education and sports management. When I was younger, I was not the best kid ever. When I was in middle school, I got in so much trouble. They had my family's number on speed dial. And I knew how to get in trouble, but get out of trouble quickly. That's how good I was. She was smart and strategic in how she caused trouble. I knew that if you got in trouble first thing in the morning, you would be suspended just for that day and not like three or five days. So I would do things in the morning first when I got off the bus before the first classroom bell would ring so that I could get in trouble then and I would be back the next day. But Miller knew she had to get her act together when she got to high school. And sports helped her come to that realization. When I got to high school, I knew that I couldn't stay involved in sports or leadership if I continued to go down that path. So my family, even though I wasn't like the best angel ever, (laughs) they still supported me with everything I did and they allowed me to make decisions that helped mold me to the person that I am today. In addition to her family, she has a host of coaches and mentors who encouraged her to look into sports management as a career. By the time she graduated high school, she knew she wanted to be an athletic director. Miller credits one mentor in particular. She interned for Brenda McCoy, who is also a Black woman and was instrumental in elevating women's basketball in college sports. McCoy held senior positions at the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference. This was at the time where women's basketball championships were being played on campus and not at a big venue like men's. They fought so hard for them to have neutral venues that were just as big as the men's venues. 
McCoy taught her values that have shaped Miller's goals at Colorado Mesa University. Miller believes strongly in equality for all sports, and she wants to enforce that equity, including in ways you might not expect. One institution I was at, um, Shaw University, women's basketball team was phenomenal, great. They actually won a national championship when I was there in 2012. During that time, a lot of sports were ignored because of the women and the platform they were on. So the men's sports had to fight for things that they didn't have. So I supported them in getting lockers for locker rooms, making sure that they are able to do the same type of travel that the women are. At that time, our women's team, they were going to Puerto Rico, Hawaii, uh, Virgin Islands, everywhere competing, but our men couldn't do that. So we had to fight so that they would have an opportunity to do the same thing. When we look at equity, we can't just look at it as one-sided. We have to look at the whole gamut, a whole picture to ensure that everyone has a great experience and a balanced experience. At CMU, she watches the women's team practice their shooter and passer drills. The goal of this drill is for each person to make 10 shots in under three minutes. If they don't, they have to do push-ups. Those girls, like, some mornings I come in, they put up, like, 400 shots a day. Yeah, it's crazy. That's why I said their arms are going to fall off. But, no, that's, that's dedication and just wanting to be good and improve your craft. For Miller, this is what she most wants to bring to the program. She stayed in sports management because she loves interacting with the athletes and knowing she makes a difference in their lives. After checking in on the women's basketball practice, Miller makes her way to the pool to watch swim practice. Miller meets up with Mickey Wonder, men's and women's swimming and diving coach. Miller watches as the men's swimming team runs drills in the Olympic-sized swimming pool. On the other side of the room, the divers practice their own drills. Does that look efficient? What? The way he's moving. Just, Let I, me see I it again. I always like to learn from other... Uh, well, actually, Other sports perspectives. Actually, them just swimming is good for their muscles with softball. Wonder hasn't been working with Miller for very long yet, but he's excited to have her on board. She's got a lot of energy. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. She seems to know what she's doing, and we're excited. Swimming is one sport Miller is learning more about in her new role as athletic director. CMU also has a few other sports she's not as familiar with, like cycling, rodeo, beach volleyball, and something a little newer. Esports is going to have its first competition here in October against Western Colorado. I said, if we have this team and they have this great facility, let's get a, a team here so we can compete against them. So they're going to actually have their first tournament here, which they've never done before. So that that's that piece where I say equity regardless, giving them an opportunity to actually compete here on campus against another team. And I think they're going to do three video games. So it's going to be here in October. So that's going to be the first for them. And I think it's going to be really, really large. So it's going to be a good thing. I'm Carla Jimenez in Grand Junction. Colorado Matters producer Carla Jimenez talking with Kimberly Miller, who recently became the athletic director at Colorado Mesa University. She's the first woman of color to serve in the role. Coming up, an Aspen Ideas-like festival centering the Latino community. Music has this special ability to elevate the stories we tell. 
make you feel seen, help you to understand someone else's experience. That's part of the joy of listening to music, and exactly what we're exploring in the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Five-minute musical explorations to help inspire great conversations about music in classrooms and during family time. Season two of the award-winning podcast, Music Blocks, is all about the stories of our lives. Find it wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A three-day celebration of Latino culture, power, and history took place earlier this month in Aspen. And the Aspen part is important. Monica Ramirez and her collaborators designed the Rosado Festival to broadly change the way people see and think about Latinx people. They plan to bring the festival back next year. Welcome to the show, Monica. Thank you so much. I've heard your team describe this event as an Aspen Ideas Festival for Latinx people. Why did you feel this event needed to take place in Aspen? Well, you know, Aspen is considered such an important place for thought leaders and change makers to convene. The Ideas Festival is exactly an example of just that, that brings together folks from all over the country and, and in sometimes different parts of the world to talk about how they're innovating and, and the ways that they're leading. And for us, it was really important to make sure that we are positioning the Latinx community in the same way. And in Aspen, as a location, it was significant because there are so many Latine, Latinx people who support and have built up the community that is Aspen, but they're now often thought of as innovators and change makers as they should be. Speaking of Aspen, Aspen definitely has a reputation as a place that caters to a more affluent white crowd. But you describe it as a place that has been built and sustained by Latinx people. Please expand on that. I mean, that's true, you know, and I think there are lots of communities around the country that are affluent, that wouldn't be able to run, wouldn't be able to operate and would not be able to prosper without the many low paid workers who are uh, the cooks in the kitchens of some of those mm. restaurants, the hotel workers, the groundskeepers, the people who are working the registration desks at the hotels that people come to visit. And Aspen has the same community of workers, um, thousands of workers are there either on a seasonal basis or throughout the year. And they are the ones who make it possible for the businesses that cater to the affluent community members to even be able to exist and operate. And you speak of it, basically you're saying the Latin culture is deeply rooted in Aspen because of this these contributions. And in fact, the name Rosado literally means deeply rooted. So pretty cool connection there. <laughs> Thanks. Well, yeah, and we're deeply rooted in Colorado. I mean, that's another significant reason we chose Colorado, not just Aspen, but the Latinx community has been in Colorado. Colorado, you know, at one time was part of Mexico. And so it's important for people to remember that our community has always been there, has always been part of building Colorado into an important state in this country. And I think that sometimes people forget that. And so it's an important reminder that we've always been there. We've always been contributing. And in Aspen in particular, that's a place that we have helped to thrive in the way that it does today. How have the Latinx people you've met in town, including, as you mentioned, people working at the festival and working in the community, how have they reacted to you and the festival in general? 
you know, the community has been so loving and so welcoming, you know, from the time that we started putting together our local host committee until the execution and even after the festival, people have just been really grateful that we decided to do the festival in Aspen, that we've engaged them deeply in the planning. It wasn't just that we invited people to attend who are from around the Roaring Fork Valley. We They were important partners in building the festival and making mm. um, the festival even possible. So, um, you know, during the three days of the festival, I had so many local community members come up to me, some of them with tears in their eyes, crying about how, you know, their family members at one time cleaned the hotels or tended to the grounds where we were holding the festival and how important it was for them to be able to show up as leaders in the community who are fully embraced and reminded of just how much they belong there. Now, sometimes the workers, you talked about that earlier, the workers who are setting up, who are working in all these places often feel invisible, uh, mm-hmm. particularly in a you know affluent place like Aspen. So do you feel that they have felt welcomed and, and seen? Definitely. And, you know, I actually had someone when we were planning the festival say to me, we support all of the festivals that happen here and we're never invited. So being invited to be leaders at the festival was significant. And, you know, it was so beautiful. You know, as I stood on the stage and I looked out at the crowd and I saw, you know, community members, some of the hotel workers and and others who came after work to come to our opening ceremony, to see them in the crowd singing the songs that were being sung by Lupita Nefante. And, you know, they were taking their own selfies by the signs. And they talked about how they don't remember a time when there were so many Latina people in Aspen at the same time. And it was a real source of pride and joy. I definitely think they felt seen and heard. So the Rosado Festival had panels on reproductive health, closing the wealth gap, among other topics. And I shouldn't mention, these panels are still available to view on the Latinx House Facebook page. Now, let's listen to an excerpt of a panel you held about disinformation and what the media in particular can do to combat it. And let's set this up. The panelists are journalists Russell, Russell Contreras from Axios, Maria Alina Salinas from ABC News, and Susan Gamboa from NBC Latino. First, you'll hear the moderator, Felipe, Felipe Estefan, from a foundation called Luminate. And we'll continue our interview with Monica after this. To start, I, I think I'm going to say something that is perhaps obvious for most of you, but it's that misinformation and disinformation are spreading at very urgent rates. Um, Raise your hand if you're in some family, and by family I mean Latino family, tia, abuelo, abuelito, primo, text chain, WhatsApp chain with your family. Raise your hand. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about when you're like crazy uncle starts sending you some message about the CIA and the COVID vaccine and <laughs> that, you know, that kind of stuff. So that, that, that's what we're talking about here. And I think all, all joking aside, I think it's important to mention a couple things. One is that This and misinformation knows no borders. I think one of the things that has shocked me the most, being Colombian but living here in the United States, is seeing the exact same memes, the exact same messaging lines that are being used in US elections in the most recent presidential 
election in Colombia. Some of the exact same racist attacks, sexist attacks against women candidates were the very attacks that the now Vice President of Colombia, Francia Marquez, was facing exactly the same images, exactly the same mechanism to spread disinformation in an articulated and sophisticated manner. And I think the other one that it is important to highlight as we enter this conversation is that disinformation has a very real impact in our communities. Let me be as clear as I can possibly be. Disinformation kills. Disinformation is killing our democracy. Disinformation is killing our communities. And just think about the person that didn't get that COVID vaccine because of vaccine disinformation. And Russell, how are you seeing it in terms of the coverage that, that you're doing from Axios' point? Well, interesting, we saw uh, through our reporting in 2020, when we asked Latinos, or we investigated, where did they get their information from for political coverage? We found that a large portion of Latinos got their political information from YouTube. They went to YouTube, they were searching for information, and granted, it's not probably people in this newsroom. It's your tío who works at the mechanic shop. It's your prima who works at the salon. Those who you've been telling to go vote all these years are now filing to go vote, and they're looking for information. Why are they going to YouTube? Well, they don't see us in mainstream media. They're looking for voices that speak to them. And if they go to a lot of the cable opinion channels or they go to news sites, they don't see their voices. There are no Latino columnists at major newspapers. There are no Mexican-American columnists at the New York Times or the Washington Post. So, it opens up a venue to go to YouTube, and the most viewed video of the YouTube 2020 campaign was a video from the Trump campaign, very simple, had MMA fighter Jorge Masvidal basically give a speech and make fun of Joe Biden debts into Despacito. It was everywhere. But if you watch that video, it was the most viewed video of the campaign. You got algorithms pointing you to other misinformation about vaccines, about the upcoming uh, allegations that there was election fraud about the immigrants coming from, the migrants coming from Central America are connected to MS-13, a number of information. So it existed. <laughs> Let's get into solutions. Um, Maria Elena, let me start with you. What do you think people should be doing or media should be doing or social media companies should be doing, philanthropy should be doing? Choose whichever one you want, and let's just open up for a round of, of what do we need to be doing about this. Well, I think social media companies are already trying to, or at least the government is trying to have more oversight over what they do. But I think one thing that we can do, even as journalists, is start with our own group, with our own surrounding, uh, with our family members, with our friends, and make sure that we tell them you know, what the facts are. We make sure that we call out things. Like my, my sister would tell me, did you see this? Where did you see that? On Facebook. I said, yeah, but what was the source? Facebook. I said, Facebook is not a media. What was the source? Facebook. They, somebody posted something on Facebook. What was the source that, post, that posted it? And she said, oh, I don't know. You know. She doesn't understand. So we have to start with our, with our family members, with the people that surround us. Um, and then another thing, I know, Susanne, you were saying a lot of this misinformation is race-based. We have to accept as a community that we are racist and that there is a lot of racism in the Latino community. I mean, and we deny it, but a lot of, the, of our beliefs come from that. 
And, you know, I see it with my family. I see it with my friends. I see it with things that I hear. Uh, so that's one of the things that we have to begin to, number one, accept that we are and look for ways to explain to people, no, it's not that way. No, it's not this way. I have a friend who was saying, oh, that Black Lives Matter movement, they're all communists. And I said, well, are you kidding me? She says, yeah, because they took a picture with Maduro. And, and I said, who took a picture? Those ladies that founded, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter. I said, okay, fine. Just because you took a picture with someone, number one, doesn't mean that they're socialists. And maybe if they are, you have to differentiate the movement from the organization. Say, oh, no, 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 no. The movement organization, same thing. You cannot separate them. I mean, there's absolutely no way that you can convince someone who, who believes what they want to believe. And that's, I think, the biggest challenge because we are in the era of people believing what they want to believe, going to the media outlets that tell them what they want to hear. And that is very difficult to combat. Suzanne, can I come to you? What can we do? What should we do? And then I'll, I'll come next to you, Russ. Listen, this is a hard question for me to answer because I'm not an advocate. I'm a journalist, right? Telemundo is doing what I think is a neat thing. When they write their stories, um, some of them, they say, okay, at the bottom, they say, here's where you could go get information about this. And they talk to their readers as consumers. They provide phone numbers. For some reason, a lot of us in the journalism field, a lot of journalism entities are unwilling to do this. They don't want to be a a source of information, like news you can use kind of information. A conduit, basically. Yeah, and I don't know why that is. Um, Telemundo is also doing a thing, a crash course with MediaWise and Pointer called um, Identifying Misleading Information. A good thing to, to check out. Um, and also, I think there needs to be funding in um, news literacy programs, uh, which are often local. I think a lot of this stuff has to go to the local level, because you, you all know what's happening at the local level. And at some point, you know, maybe even we as journalists, I, I know there are town halls, it's great to get tons of people, but maybe it needs to start at, the, at, at a little neighborhood level and go from there. And I would point yeah. out, there is a big difference between telling lies about the past and the present and being delusional about the present and the future, right? There's different intents. One is to hurt and persuade you, and one is you're not being honest about what needs to be done. A few days from now, a few weeks, we're gonna start Hispanic Heritage Month. And in your local communities, you will hear the same thing. There'll be the story about Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta. And if you're lucky, maybe Roberto Clemente or Salina, maybe Richie Valens. But you will not hear key people like Maria Moreno, or Emma Tamayuca, or Luisa Moreno, or Maria Varela, or Providencia Paredes. If you don't know those names, I suggest you look them up. Undocumented woman in the White House during the Kennedy administration to women who organized an event like this in 1930. If you don't have information, this can hurt us later. No information is the adolescent for misinformation. And misinformation is the young teenager for disinformation. We have an obligation. You have an obligation to fight that too. We can do our role, but you as consumers also have that right. And, and there is a difference between freedom of speech and freedom of reach, which I think is what a lot of people are debating over what the extent of the technology companies have. And you also have to think about laws that exist today, like um, uh, legal liability for tech uh, companies. You know, uh, that Facebook thing that I told you, Facebook can, can uh, generate that kind of content and suggest people join white or, or get white supremacist news, but have no legal li liability for suggesting they join or anything like that for spreading that kind of content. So there, there, are, there are efforts out there to, to, I read a Time Magazine article on this recently, and so I'll look for that, but, um, but um, it, you know, there's, there are efforts to try and change and update laws that govern technology that 
if people are really concerned about this, whether you're an advocate or just your everyday person, this is who you need to con contact your congressman, um, you know, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, or your local people about to try to have some movement on that. And it also has to do with, uh, also there's uh, laws on um, monopolies, on Facebook and Google being the place where advertisers who pay for our content, for me to be able to put out a story about the census director being a Chicano, um, go, they have to go through Facebook and Google and, and those are the only people they have to, to put out ad revenue. So there's all kinds of, there are laws on that that you really should look into. The regulatory framework right now is insufficient. Laws from the 60s and 70s about regulation of media and technology are not enough to hold the social media companies accountable and to speak truth to power. We have to speak truth to power of those who are dominating and controlling the public sphere of information. We have to do more media literacy, more investment, and philanthropy, and I say this as someone who works in a philanthropic organization, we have to commit more resources to digital and media literacy for the Latinx community. And finally, we have to shift the narratives that are allowing this and misinformation to really flourish, and we have to shift the narratives about our community in very proactive ways. Narratives don't die. They just get replaced. So we have to be thinking about the ways in which we both call out injustice while also creating space for imagining a more inclusive uh, world and democracy where we belong and where we're empowered to drive the decisions that impact our lives. That was an excerpt from the Rosado Festival and a panel on disinformation in Latino communities that took place in Aspen earlier this month. We're talking with the festival's co-founder, Monica Ramirez. I want to read back to you something you said before the festival about the biggest thing you wanted to achieve. You said in an online interview, quote, there's a false narrative in this country that we are takers, that we take jobs, resources, benefits, opportunities. The narrative needs to change to reflect who we truly are, which is that we give. We give our culture, jobs, opportunities, ideas. I hope that coming out of this festival, people understand all the ways that we give. Do you think you achieved that in your few days in Aspen? I definitely believe that we opened people's eyes to some leaders and to some changes that we have been directly responsible for. And I think that there's a new framing, right? You know, everyone who attended our festival was a leader is a leader in our community, whether they were farm worker women who traveled to attend or domestic workers or some of the business, biggest business leaders, they were all leaders. And I think that that's probably one of the best outcomes of this festival is we help to reframe the conversation about who is leading in our country and how many of those Latinx leaders have always been making important contributions. I think that we did at least um, crack the door a bit when it comes to that particular topic. Now, part of the giving is the culture. You celebrated mm -hmm. culture from throughout Latin America when you were in Aspen. As okay. you look back, what was the highlight for you? When were you having the most fun? I mean, I loved everything so much. And of course, I am biased because I created it. But for <laughs> me, the most, like, one of the most powerful moments was when I got on stage to do the welcome and just looking out at the crowd and seeing, first of all, that everyone came, 
right? And when you're building something like this, it's never been built before. There's that moment of fear when you're like, are people going to actually show up for this? Thing? <laughs> and so like looking out and seeing them, like they came and there was so much love and so much joy. That for me was one of the best moments of the festival. And then of course we had the opportunity to be in deep conversation and celebration. And, and then if there was the part of our festival where we were honoring those in our community that have passed away, the thousands mm. of people who died from COVID, people who died because of gun violence. And that was also a very special moment. It was a very sad, very somber moment, but it was also beautiful. You've said you want to bring the festival back for 10 years. Will the Colorado public be able to register to participate in the Rosado Festival next year? So, um, yes, we're going to do this for at least 10 years, maybe even more. We'll see. And um, next year, our hope is that we will continue to offer public programming that people will be able to register to attend. And the public programming is very important to us because that is free to mm. the public to attend. Um, there is the ticketed portion and, and certainly we'll make tickets available to members of the Colorado community as we did this year. But I really want to uplift the free public programming because we don't want cost to be a barrier. And I think sometimes when think people think about Aspen, they think the cost will be a mm. barrier. And that is why it was so important for us to create the free public programming. Monica, thank you. Thank you. Monica Ramirez co-founded the Rosado Festival, a celebration and exploration of Latinx culture in Aspen. Up next, he's worked with some of the biggest names in music, like Quincy Jones, Whitney Houston, Phil Collins, to name a few. But this weekend, Grammy-winning saxophonist Gerald Albright takes the stage near his home here in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Growing up, May Ortega thought that she had a pretty good idea of who she was. But when she became a journalist, she realized that to report on other people, she had to figure out her own story. In first grade, we noticed that everything was in English. So sometimes like they would slap the back of your hand with rulers if you were speaking Spanish when they would tell you not to. You can find the newest episode of Quien Are We? everywhere you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Colorado Matters. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Gerald Albright is synonymous with the musical genre known as smooth jazz. The Grammy-winning saxophonist started as a studio musician in the 80s, working for artists such as Anita Baker and Olivia Newton-John, eventually launching a solo career in 1987 with the album Just Between Us. Albright lives in Castle Rock, and tomorrow night he'll take the stage at the Lone Tree Arts Center. He told me earlier this week that the show will feature a special guest vocalist who is close to his heart, his daughter, Selena Albright. We haven't shared the stage in a while because she's been having our grandchildren, honestly speaking, over the past <laughs> couple of years. So uh, she has a newborn that's only close to about three months old, so she's been chasing babies you know, Selena is a dynamic producer, songwriter, and record company owner and recording artist in her own right. And we're going to bring all that to the stage. And we like to party with our people. You know, it's not one of those um, kind of sit down and, and watch and listen to the artists. We like to get the audience involved in our show. So we're real excited to share the stage together on Friday night. 
And why is that so important to you to, you know, extend that to your daughter? And also you've collaborated with so many artists. Why is collaboration so important to you? Well, it's a big part of the pie, the musical pie. You know, collaborating with other artists uh, only brings, you know, special music and other great chapters to the listening ear of our audiences. You know, we like to mix it up a lot. You know, I I don't want to write all the songs and, and perform all the songs by myself. I mean, it's it's a lot more fun for me to be a part of a team and share talents with folks who I truly love on different levels, both musically, spiritually, and otherwise. And it just promotes the music on a higher platform. So it's all about celebrating the music and collaborating is one of those major facets of it that we just know and love. One talent that was fresh on Gerald Albright's mind during our talk was jazz pianist Ramsey Lewis, who died last week at age 87. I was just blessed to know him as a friend and just a class act. He was always very genuine, very embracive, a keen dresser. He was always sharp as a tack, even when he was casual, you know, he was dressed and, and, you know, the pants were creased and the shirt was starched and the whole thing, you know. And he took the time to, you know, just to talk to various musicians and uh, he would be greatly missed. Uh, that was a big blow for me when I heard that uh, that he left us. But um, the legacy that he has left behind is a real blessing to have known him and for him to have shared eight plus decades with us. Gerald Albright reflecting on the late Ramsey Lewis. Albright performs tomorrow night at the Lone Tree Arts Center. Next week, we'll have more of my conversation with the Grammy-winning saxophonist based in Castle Rock. That's our show and a lovely day to you from our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.